This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think that what really underlies all this passion and perseverance that, that is the kind of obvious phenotype, if you will, is like an alignment. What do I mean? Well, you know, what I do and what I say and what I want and what I want to want and what I want to want to want. And in fact, my highest level, like it's all aligned. There's a kind of harmony. That was Dr. Angela Duckworth on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot P-O-T-C, ZocDoc.com P-O-T-C. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk 
dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Psychologist Off the Clock is supported by Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis Continuing Education, you can really transform your clients' lives. You can learn how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And it's really the premier provider of continuing education for clinical professionals. You can earn CEs if you're a psychologist, social worker, counselor, behavior analyst, MFT, physician, nurse, and more. And Praxis has both on-demand courses and live online courses. Right now, you can get Act Immersion or Act in Practice with Steve Hayes, as well as Act One with Matt Boone and Focused Act for Brief Interventions with Kirk Strosall and Patty Robinson. Those are the on-demand courses. And live self-care and radical healing among BIPOC therapists on the front lines, culturally tailored act, fundamentals of DBT, act in behavior analysis, superhero therapy, and more. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you'll get a coupon code for the live courses there. Check us out at offtheclockpsych.com. Hi, this is Yael here to introduce our 200th episode. So I'm here with Debbie, Diana, and Jill. And we're introducing an episode that features Angela Duckworth, who wrote one of my favorite all-time books called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And we are at episode 200, and it took a lot of grit to get here. Diana and Debbie started this several years ago, and it's gone through a lot of evolutions and transformations and different representations, but it's always been something that we keep coming back to because we are passionate about it, and that passion helps us to persevere. So we wanted to talk a little bit about passion and perseverance in the podcast and, and sort of what it's taken and, and what the joy is in doing this kind of work. So Debbie, why don't you get us started? Yeah, I mean, it's been four and a half years. We would not have kept doing it that long, I think, if the passion wasn't there, if we didn't get some vitality from it and some joy and fun from it. Um, and it definitely takes perseverance at times. You know, there's times when this is a lot. And I just have a quick recent example you know, the work ebbs and flows with a podcast. We can go for stretches. Since there's four of us, we can go through stretches where we're not doing a whole lot of work on it um, because our co-hosts are carrying the load. But then I had a period recently where I just had a lot of podcast work all at once. And to be honest, I also had some other stressors going on and I was just feeling a little tired and I had to prepare for an episode coming up and I really just had to persevere. You know, I would have probably rather gone to bed earlier than stay up late prepping my questions. And so I think, yeah, we have to be a little gritty to keep doing this. So this is this is Diana. And uh, two things that really stood out for me in your conversation with Angela Duckworth, and I think let's just pause and say, holy moly, we have Angela Duckworth on the show today, <laughs> episode 200. And to have such a powerhouse woman that is also so incredibly um, just important for us in our own lives. So it's incredible to have her on. But two things that really stood out for me that she talked about were first, this conversation that you had around when to grit and when to quit. And then the second conversation where she turned the tables on you, Yael, and you talked about ACT. And for me, when I think about the podcast and just grit in my own life, and when to grit and when to quit, I really think it has, it has to really boil down to values. And what are the values for me in doing this? And because there are times when we do need to quit things. 
And that when it's the functionality of, of grit is actually leading us away from our values, when we're just continuing to strive and pursue and we're going in directions that don't matter to us, I don't think that's grit used in a, in a, in a helpful, wholesome way. But for me, it's like, how do you use grit to pursue what you care about? For me on the podcast, it's about sharing these ideas that have been profoundly impactful for me in my personal life, but also in my clinical work with with people, with with moms, with uh, parents, with people that are in relationships so they can actually improve their lives for the better. And so know when to, when to grit and when to quit and use your values as your guide. <laughs> you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Exactly. Well, for me, this is Jill. I really liked the part of your conversation, Yael, where you guys were talking about dissemination of science. And I think that what makes me feel the most passionate about this podcast is that we have this unique opportunity, this platform to share science-backed ideas from psychology with the public in a way that, you know, they otherwise wouldn't necessarily have access to. And that just makes me feel so good. I feel so passionate to know that we're able to help. I mean, we're, we're at like 1.3 million downloads of this podcast now. Like that's incredible to think how many people are being reached with this really important and helpful information. And so it feels, you know, just like Diana said, it feels really worth it to persevere even when it gets hard, even though this isn't paying our salaries. Um, but to persevere when it gets hard because it feels so values aligned. And, and I love the three of you. You know, I just think being able to work together in this team is one of the greatest gifts of my life. And I feel passionate about working with other amazing women, too. I feel the same. And um, this is Yael. For me, the conversation and, and book in general just really emphasize the importance of having clear values and like why you're doing something, because that helps to really bring your passion to the fore and, and creates a compass, like why you're doing it and how to keep doing it even when it's hard. And Angela Duckworth has a really nice way of um, articulating her core value, which has a lot to do with translating science to the public. And I would say, you know, Jill, you have a really similar one and so do I. And mine is specifically in translating science about relationships, um, both between people and in couples, parents and children but also relationships between roles, which is kind of where my interest in work and family comes from. And translating the science to the public in accessible ways feels really important. And having that clarity helps me overcome the kinds of things that come up for me regularly, which is like a lot of emotional discomfort. Like, for example, in the lead up to the interview with Angela Duckworth, who's, you know, you'll hear me fangirling out in my interview with her. I was tremendously nervous and there was many, many times that I had the thought, like, I just wish I hadn't signed up for it. It's like overwhelming. I'm going to embarrass myself. Now Angela Duckworth is going to know that I'm kind of a dodo. And, you know, in the middle of the interview, I'm having all these really self-critical thoughts and, and having that clarity of like, I'm doing this for a reason and being able to kind of reconnect to that value helped me to also remember like, you know, enjoy this moment. You're talking to Angela Duckworth. How, how cool is that? <laughs> and so being able to connect both to the passion and the reason to persist can kind of open you up to other gifts that come along the way. Um, and I think that's, you know, where the power of grit really lies. And Yael, we had a conversation on the eve of the Angela Duckworth, Kristen Neff 
powerhouse interviews that are coming out back to back. Because I think that's the other part of this is that there's a behind the scenes of the power of women supporting each other and calling each other and saying, Hey, can you help me get through this interview? Or can we talk it through at, you know, it was was evening, you put the kids down to bed and talking through our anxieties and also supporting, encouraging each other. And I think that grit is best done when we do it in, in support. That collaboration piece is so key. Yeah. So happy 200th episode, ladies. And thank you to all of our listeners and to Melissa and Katie and Michael, who are the behind the scenes team that make this engine run. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Professor Angela Duckworth from the University of Pennsylvania. She's the founder and scientific director of the Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance science that helps kids thrive. She is a 2013 MacArthur Genius Fellow. Angela studies grit and self-control attributes that powerfully predict success and well-being, even over and above IQ or talent. She's also author of the best-selling book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, and a podcast co-host of one of my favorite shows that boasts a terrific title, No Stupid Questions. Angela has advised the White House, the World Bank, NBA, and NFL, and Fortune 500 CEOs. She's received numerous awards for her contributions to education, and prior to her career in research, she was a math and science teacher at public schools in New York, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. I just want to start off by thanking you for joining me for our Psychologist Off the Clock 200th episode. Thank you. This is great. It's certainly no accident that I wanted you to come on to talk about grit because it took us a lot of grit to make it to the 200th episode. But before we get into talking about grit, I just I actually have gotten very excited about your No Stupid Questions Asked podcast. I love it. It's such a fun conversation that you and Stephen Dubner have going. Um, I love that you guys have such a warm but also slightly snarky relationship with one another and that you use social science to (laughs) answer all these really that's a good description, quite provocative questions. All right. So let's maybe start off with having you give a definition of grit because sort of in the popular sphere, it can get a little watered down or even distorted. Um, And then I was just curious if you could give us the definition, but also help clarify how grit is associated with achievement. It was in my first year of graduate school when my advisor said, you know, what's the name of this thing that you keep talking about as a predictor of achievement that is so different from measures of talent or IQ? And I had described people who stick with things over really long periods, you know, for years or or even decades uh, in in adulthood. And, um, you know, they're just relentless. They're uh, so tenacious. They're also obsessed, you know, like they think about what they're doing all the time, voluntarily, not through coercion. And I didn't think it mattered very much that I didn't have a word for it. I was like, well, you know, like, why do we want to like stop what we're doing to think about what to call it? And Marty actually, uh, Marty Seligman, who was uh, my PhD advisor, now my colleague at Penn, actually refused to keep meeting with me until I had a name for it. He was like, oh, well, this meeting's over. And I was like, what do you mean this meeting's over? He was like, well, you know, I, I don't want to talk about it until you know what to call it. So I remember coming in with a like legal notepad with all these words I had written out. I think I'd gone to like thesauruses or whatever. <laughs> I was like, persistence, you know, tenacity, stick like grit. And Marty was like, hold on, 
grit. And I was like, grit, you know, like true grit, like John Wayne, like grit, like, like grit. And he was like, yeah, that's grit. All right. Now we can keep talking. (laughs) Now you can come back to having meetings. (laughs) Yeah. Now we can keep doing science. So, you know, Marty is an unusual scientist. And for those who don't know, he's well uh, well known today as being a positive psychologist, like somebody who helped christen the study scientific study of happiness. Um, before that, though, he was a world renowned clinical psychologist who was credited with some of the foundational animal research on depression. Right before Marty, there weren't animal models of depression, and uh, so Marty's a, a great scientist. But the other thing that is remarkable about Marty is, or at least one other thing, is like he really is a world class communicator. And before the kind of books that we take for granted and the sort of, you know, TED Talk podcast conversation that we might have about behavioral science, Marty was ahead of his time in writing books like Learned Optimism that, uh, you know, tried to communicate scientific insights to a broader audience. So so that's why, um, you know, we stopped everything we were doing to call this combination of passion and perseverance for long-term goals what I call it today, which is, which is grit. Um, and, you know, to your question, Yael, the, the reason I got excited about it is because I had come to graduate school to try to fix the achievement gap that I saw in my work as a classroom teacher. And I had the intuition that the kids that I was trying to teach math, uh, were, were actually like fully intellectually capable of learning you know, how to get Y or X all by itself in an equation. Um, It's not like they weren't smart enough to do that, but somehow had not unlocked their sustained motivation. So there's lots of things that go into how much effort somebody puts forth to learn something or do something. But I do think that stamina, you know, you say like, this is the 200th podcast. Like there are so many things that get in the way along the way of doing anything important that uh, to some extent, you know, a a stick-to-itiveness, a grit about what you're doing is important because of the nature of achievement. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things I want to pull out there. One is this piece of communication that is really important, that what we call things really matters. And And I want to actually come back to that through the interview, because I think that to some extent, it can get misinterpreted no matter what you call it. And yet we do have to pick labels for things, especially in the service of communicating our ideas. And that's an important um, just truth in science that how we communicate our findings really matters. And yet, it you know, words can never capture sort of the essence of a thing that you're trying to describe. And that's one of the um, challenges, I think, in, in academic science getting translated out into the popular press. The the other thing that I, well, I got to admit that one of the central reasons that I wanted to bring you on was this idea of, of how this idea of grit really plays out in real life. And, and one of the areas that I write a lot about, and I'm actually working on a book about working parenthood. And so when we talk about persistence towards a goal and having, you know, passion that can help us sustain in our persistence, a lot of what you write about is sort of like a singular goal. But I actually wanted to have you talk a little bit about your personal experience, because as I understand it, when you started graduate school, you were a young mother. And if I'm correct in my timeline, you had a second child while you were a graduate student. And so I'm curious for you how you see um, the persistence towards like your professional goal um, being sort of impinged by your parenthood. 
And and I'll say just one more thing that I'll probably use too many words to describe. But one of the things that I write about is this concept of work-family enrichment. So we talk a lot about the conflict between these two domains. And at the same time, there's also evidence that suggests that the two roles can actually feed each other. They can nurture each other in really important ways by buffering stress, by this additive effect of enriching life, and then also through skill transfer. And I think that's those last two are particularly important for the development and of grit and sort of how grit translates into achievement over time. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of how grit fits into working parenthood and, and in fact, maybe how working parenthood can help grit grow. When I started graduate school, I was 32, and you're exactly right, Yael, I was already a mom of a toddler, um, somewhere between infant and toddler, if there's a name for that. And then I was pregnant with my um, second daughter, you know, right then in the first year. And um, I, in some ways, had the funny experience of growing up as a mom and growing up as a psychologist at exactly the same time. It certainly gave a whole new dimension to my appreciation of developmental psychology when I was learning what, you know, little kids were supposed to be able to do at different stages. And I think that to your point about work family enrichment, um, I, you know, nobody ever wants to generalize from their one experience personally to like all moms or all parents. But um, to some extent, like it's the only story, you know, so I'll just share a little bit of what it was like for me. Um, You know, fortunately, my two daughters didn't have, you know, major health problems um, uh, that, uh, you know, I think create special stress. Um, I I had these two healthy little girls, and um, I had a working husband. My husband was, we we both grew up a lot, by the way, in the last um, two decades. And I think at the beginning of his career, I mean, he, when I say he was like a hard worker, like he would probably agree with me, like maybe a little too hard of a worker. So we had a lot of um, juggling to do, right? With a baby in the house, a baby on the way, his job and career, my beginning of graduate school. So it's not to say that there wasn't um, some balancing to do, but but to your point about enrichment, I personally found, and maybe I was just lucky because I was a psychologist who happened to be studying human development and then a mom whose job was essentially human development. But to me, there was a lot of complementarity. So I would come home having learned about executive function and prefrontal cortex. And then I would just be like watching my kids and, you know, observing when they did or didn't seem to be um, using the front part of their brains. (laughs) So there was a lot of enrichment that went like to my my psychological, you know, intuitions getting sharper from being a mom. I thought it was a great convenience to have two kids that I could run experiments on, which I totally did. I'd be like, okay, Amanda, sit here. See this marshmallow? <laughs> if you it. can wait. And then I literally did the marshmallow task on them and variations thereof. I also, as they got older, would just ask them questions about what they believed, that, you know, how they saw things. And so it was enormously enriching in, in that direction, right? From parenthood to professional development. And then in terms of the the other way, right? Like I think I wasn't enriched and enabled as a parent because, you know, the parenting is so hard, as you know, and um, it was really helpful to me to have like an intellectual framework to understand that it wasn't just all stories and examples from my own experience. I 
you know, kind of knew what Piaget said. And I also knew what Walter Michel said. And I, you know, think it was actually very helpful. One of the reasons I think your podcast is so exciting is that, you know, a hundred years ago, this kind of scientific understanding of what, what's going on with people and children and development and motivation and emotion. Like it was all hearsay and anecdote. And well, you know, my grandmother told me this. So I thought it was great to, to have some, some intellectual framework that it wasn't just, you know, me trying to navigate um, completely by my own personal intuitions. So I thought it was a pretty two way enriching experience. I, I, I think I was very lucky, you know, I don't want to extrapolate too much in part because um, we could afford childcare and we had no pair. One of the best, but also luxurious decisions or privileged decisions anybody could make. We had like double childcare. So if, you know, the childcare was closed, the au pair, could, like if the, if my daughter was sick, then like she could stay home with the au pair. So there were a lot of um, affordances that I had, you know, that, that maybe enabled me to benefit like in this two way exchange. Um, and I, again, don't want to generalize but, but, um, yeah, I'm very lucky to have been a mom and a graduate student at the same time. Yeah. And, and I think that sort of noting the privileges is a helpful thing, but I guess even just zooming out a bit more. So I've conducted dozens of interviews with working parents of various backgrounds. And I think what's very interesting is that if you get people to think about like, what are their passions and where are they able to persist? They're often able to pull out more positive elements. I mean, that's kind of the gift of positive psychology is like when we think more about the positive things, they tend to come more to the fore. And I've done interviews like with um, a woman who worked at a utility call center and a man who was a cruise ship room attendant. And even in those, you know, less privileged, more challenging professional spheres, and even for parents with kids who have disabilities or other um, challenges, that people can find ways that parenting enriches their work and that work enriches their parenting. And what I think is kind of cool in the grit sphere again, if we're talking about sort of passion and persistence, is that if you have particular challenges in one, pulling from the other to kind of motivate you and and to get back in touch with why it's important so that you can persist can be really helpful. So for example, if your child is going through a really difficult developmental phase, you can kind of escape to work, but you can also use the opportunity to develop patience and communication and perspective taking in your work life. And you can sort of do it the other way. You don't, and vice versa. You can sort of pull out that reason, that sort of motivation, to, both to persist, but also to you know really connect to like why you do it, your your underlying why, your superordinate purpose. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And um, as you well know, there are these brief interventions in psychology. One of the most famous being the values affirmation, where you write about something um, that you believe is important. And then like all these other things in your life go better. Um, and there are these, it seems like spillover effects, right? Where, you know, you're, um, maybe having a really terrible day at work and, um, you're disappointed and discouraged, but then, you know, at dinner, you get to be with these people who like are just delighted to see you and it kind of fills your cup. Um, I, I, I don't want to say that like, that's the only reason why the values affirmation works, but there is something about kind of 
you know, like you know, having the assurance that like you're okay um, and and you're important and you matter. Um, uh, like th- that is one of many benefits like of, of being both working and a parent. Um, you know, you also mentioned like their skills that you might develop, right? I, I, I think that for me, whatever skills I have, and they're not anything to brag about in terms of being able to manage my temper and then just my emotion in general and to like work with other people, right? Cause we're all emotional creatures, like that's being human. Um, I would say that like, if there were a, like, you know, like a high intensity training for that, it would be like being with my daughters. <laughs> and then if I can do that, you know, oh, no problem. Like working with graduate students or like collaborators. I'm like, yeah, I've got a teenage daughter. I'm good. So yeah, I completely agree with them. Um, with that point also. Well, let me ask you a little bit about that too, because I think, you know, grit gets captured by this, you know, simple equation of like passion and persistence. And I've also heard you say, but, but that's not the, you know, passion and persistence are just a part of what it takes to be successful, but also there might be like nuance to how grit gets grown. And so I think interpersonal skill and likability seem like they're part and parcel of being successful? Are they part and parcel of being gritty? I think that, um, you know, say likability is just one other thing um, that would be part of the equation of being more likely to succeed in life. Um, I, I, I think, yes, it's definitely relevant to being successful, um, at least in, in many or most ways. No, it is not part of grit. Like I know, I remember um, our common friend, Barry Schwartz, um, psychologist at Swarthmore and just mensch on oh, extraordinaire. She's such a man. She's like super mensch. Um, and if you're listening to this and you want to meet Barry, like go try. I highly recommend it. Your life will be better. And Barry was at the time at Swarthmore as a professor. I was coming up in the world as a, you know, hoping to be tenured professor someday. And I, of course, was clueless and didn't know what I was doing and was going in a million different directions. And I remember having this conversation with Barry where I started to think about all the other things that you know, mattered for achievement, like luck. Um, And uh, you mentioned, you know, likability, or you could say more broadly, like social skills. Um, And there's also creativity and curiosity. I mean, the list, you know, starts getting really long when you, when you really consider like, wait a second, that's, that's not all. Um, And Barry gave me very good advice, which he said, you don't want as a psychologist to, to to find your idea, your construct to use jargon, um, like more and more inclusively just to include everything there is under the sun that might be relevant to the outcome that you're studying. I mean, there have to be some boundaries on what's useful to call grit and then when it starts to become something else. Right. And, and I think like ability falls outside of grit. I think we can think of really tenacious people who are, you know, obsessively committed and really hard workers who aren't especially likable or even, um, you know, it's not hard to bring to mind a dislike, you know, gritty paragon that you, you know, maybe know personally or as a public figure. So I think likability is different. I, by the way, um, when I was in graduate school, was tempted to study two other things than I, than I eventually ended up studying, um, grit and effort and self-control and all that. The psychology of, you know, basically goal-directed energy is what I ended up studying. But the two other things, like one, it was likability um, or charisma, you know, that whole category of like, you know, who's an attractive 
person interpersonally. And then the second or the third, well, the second thing I didn't study, but the third thing I could have studied, I guess, um, I chose the first of three was the placebo effect. Oh, those are different. They are. And I, you know, always, you know, have... I don't have regrets. I just, I'm just very curious about yeah. these other topics. Well, I think likability is so interesting. And the reason that I wanted to ask you is in reading your book, you come across as very likable in your writing. And it's so cute on your podcast with Stephen Dubner. He's constantly pointing out how likable you are. And I just think it's, and, <laughs> I mean, part of why it seems that likability is so attached to success. And I think this really comes through in your book is that you're able to you know, develop relationships with colleagues who whose expertise you can rely on, with interviewees whose stories they're willing to share, with um, you know f- folks who who kind of come into your life whose interests are very different than yours. Like you, you went and visited with the Seattle Seahawks coach and spoke with you know a comedian, and it, I think who is very likable, by the way. Well, and and I think your ability to form connections. Um, you know, really does lead to success, but it is useful to note that that's a really different construct. It can, and, and that grit is just one element that leads to success. And I think that that's, as I understand it, one of the criticisms that sometimes gets lodged against your work, which is that it almost sounds like you're suggesting that grit is the only thing. And I think you are very, if you are, if one is to read your work more closely, it's very clear that you say this is just one of the elements that matters. I tried to explain regression coefficients <laughs> and incremental predictive validity to a fact checker at the New York Times once um, because like the fact checker calls me up and this is years ago. So I can't even remember what article it was for. Um, and they say, so you're saying that grit's the only thing that matters for success. And I was like, nope. And they were like, okay, you're saying it's not the only thing, but it's the most important thing. Nope. Like they're like, well, you you say that grit predicted over and above intelligence, and I was like, yes, over and above in the regression model, which I'm going to explain to you in a second. Like that means incrementally; it means in addition to. So then I tried to explain all this and basically give like regression modeling 101 <laughs> to a non-trained scientist. And, and I will say this, they, they made a valiant effort to try to understand that I made a valiant effort to attempt to explain, you know, it is a criticism that, you know, Oh, Angela says that, uh, you know, like grid is so much more important than it really is. Um, I think that partly that allegation is understandable in that when you give a Ted talk, right. Which is like end to end, the one I gave was like six minutes or something. <laughs> right. It's like, it, it's like how much nuance can you, can you pack in to, to 360 seconds? Right. Like turns out not a lot. <laughs> Unless you talk very, very fast. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should have done it at two X and just cheated and had a 12 yeah, minute. Tender. But even then, right. Like how much can you pack in the 12 minutes? And then even when you write a book, I mean, I, I wrote the book as, as, as carefully as I could, but I do remember early versions that nobody ever saw except for my editor. So my editor was named Rick Horgan and um, I would send him drafts, you know, like any author does, you know, I'm sure you are as well for your book. And, you know, I, I would say like, I have done as, as good a job as I can in explaining a binary logistic regression model um, for my West Point study. And I think it's damn near poetry, <laughs> right? And he would read it and he'd be like, there's just no poetry that is going to make the average person 
want to delve into the details of your binary logistic regression model. And he eventually convinced me to, um, you know, try to communicate in a way that was simple enough that like a very broad audience could understand. But the, the criticism then is like, wait, you know, you, you, you didn't explain odds ratios or confidence intervals or like, you know, you, you, you put all this stuff in the end notes that you probably should have put in the front. And, um, you know, one of my inspirations in, in, in life, I guess, professionally, at least, is um, William James, who, uh, as you know, was at Harvard in the um, psychology department um, in the, uh, you know, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And he uh, was very ahead of his time in that he gave these lectures publicly that would have been called TED Talks if they had that word back then. But he called them talks to teachers because that was actually the, the trustees of Harvard asked him to give these public talks. It's like giving science away. I mean, he would have had a podcast like you maybe if he had been born today. And, um, and in the opening lecture to this talks to teachers series that he went around and gave again and again at, you know, little churches and in, you know, public areas where they would have him. Um, he said that like there, there, there is, you know, so much value in, in uh, understanding psychologically what's going on with people and that he wanted to share a little bit um, without a lot of jargon to a broad audience. And he said in that opening lecture, you know, if I burden you with all the technical terms and all the complexity, like you're not going to make it through the <laughs> lecture. And I think that that allegation is both understandable. And yet for anybody who ever tries to actually do this, like you try to explain to somebody like anything, right? Without some amount of nuance or complexity, unfortunately being lost, you know, in order to keep people awake. Um, uh, so I, it's not that I disagree entirely with the allegation, but I think it's better to try than to never try to communicate, you know, what I think are, are reasonably valuable insights about human nature. Yeah. And, and I, agree that it's a little you're a little bit damned if you do and damned if you don't but i think on balance <laughs> it's such a gift to be able to be somebody in academia who's translating your findings for the public because you know that that's a crossover that doesn't happen nearly enough because there is all this really valuable information and clinical psychology is one of the domains that you know we have so much to offer so i think the more that academics get out and and share those kind of scientific findings in ways that are accessible i think that's just a huge gift we're getting better at it i mean you know we're getting better at the public's getting more sophisticated you know most people in 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 um, uh, the world you know uh know something about what it means to have an experiment or like a control condition. And, you know, these are uh, like relatively sophisticated concepts. So I think we're all getting better at it. So, so in that vein, I actually wanted to ask a specific question about grit that I think is a nuance that comes through clearly in your writing, but that um, sometimes gets lost in like the short blogs that might be written about translation. Grit, is, um, you know, grit is sort of like passion and persistence towards a goal, you know, even when you hit roadblocks. And one of the criticisms that I've heard is that it doesn't highlight that there are times when you should quit, you should pivot and change directions. And so I wonder if you can explain what your, what your philosophy on how grit fits into like when to pivot. 
Yeah, when to grit and when to quit um, would be one way to ask that question. And I think it's a very good one because you can imagine, and in fact, I don't have to imagine much because I've done this before, um, like the pursuit of a stupid goal stubbornly, you know, that is actually now crowding out energy that you could put towards a better goal, right? Like I have, you know, worked on papers where like it took me nine years to publish it. Now, am I glad I published it? Sure. Could I have been doing something else in those nine years that was more profitable? Probably. And, and most um, important, I think that um, sometimes my uh, willingness to just like put in more energy, like, you know, work on it another year, stay up a little later has gotten me into trouble because I, I probably with that particular paper could have figured out a way to do 95% of what I was doing um, in one ninth the time, right? Like, did I really have to email every person who had ever written a paper on self-control personally and ask them if they had a correlation coefficient that they could share for my meta-analysis and then like make a big spreadsheet of everybody who hadn't replied? And then, you know, I, I mean, there, there are things where I think if you are too gritty um, and in a narrow way in a kind of strangely myopic way, ironically, like you can actually get yourself into the, 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 the problem of like wasting energy, um, when it could have been spent in, in a different way better. Um, I think the recommendation I have is that people, um, ought to try for the following, you know, try to keep your grit for your higher level goals. You know, like I do have a higher, highest level. So you mentioned superordinate goals. I mean, I've recently in the last year, like realized that probably the most succinct way I can phrase my top level professional goal is to increase psychological literacy. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I've been teaching this class to undergraduates and, you know, I'm having them reflect on their goals and and I, you know, do all the same homework assignments that my students do. So in the course of that experience, I thought like, you know, I think what I'm really trying to do is increase psychological literacy. I used to say, uh, and I still do, right? Increase um, or use psychological science to help kids thrive. Um, but more and more, as I realized that, like, that means that superintendents of school districts and congressmen and moms and, you know, uncles and aunts and neighbors and pastors and imams, like, if we could make everybody a little more psychologically literate, a little more psychologically wise, then really that's the name of the game, right? Like that then every child would grow up with all these like grownups in their life who knew a little bit better about like why it is that people cry and, you know, why we smile and, you know, what makes for a good friendship and why people give up on things and why sometimes they don't give up on things. So anyway, so um, I think I should be extremely gritty about that highest level goal. Right. And, and I don't know what would make me give it, give it up, but, um, but I think if it's a very particular low level goal, it's like, you know, get this grant from this foundation, you know, develop a paper with this particular person, then I think you should be flexible actually. And I have in my life, like countless times, I think been gritty at the wrong level of my goal hierarchy. Well, that's an interesting reflection on, uh, on your own life. And I, I can actually say that I've done the same thing. But one thing that comes up for me, so um, I and all of my co-host colleagues practice acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an evidence behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy. Um, But it really relies on this clarified value idea. So like, and and I think that that superordinate goal is in a sense, your highest level value. And then 
the mm. objective is to identify committed actions that kind of align with your higher level values. And then underneath what you're always aiming for in acceptance and commitment therapy is to develop something called psychological flexibility, which is the ability to persist or desist depending both on your values and on your internal and external circumstances. So for example, in, in the example that you just gave, if you get hmm. uh, a grant application rejected, you kind of check yourself about what your values are and then figure out, given the circumstances, you know, are there other foundations that you can apply to or, or should you, you know, pivot towards a different goal that yeah. sort of serves that same value? And so I actually think that the idea of grit and how you build it is very aligned with some of the philosophies of acceptance and commitment therapy. Now I'm going to have to use a little self-control because now all I want to do is interview you <laughs> because I'm very interested in acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I think it goes by the acronym ACT. It's yeah, it's. I actually was just listening to your your um, episode with Stephen Dubner about acronyms versus initialization. I can't remember what the words were, but it's so it's actually it's ACT. Oh, it yeah. is ACT. So it is an uh, acronym, not an initialism, initialism. Actually, I should say. So it is goes by. And um, I was curious in two ways, um, if you don't mind my asking. So um, I'm not clinically trained, and I know only know of. Act so I haven't actually participated in Act either as a therapist or as a client. But how would you relate Act to cognitive behavioral therapy? Like, is it cognitive behavioral therapy plus mindfulness? And then a second question, which may or may not be related. So um, I was recently talking to like a hedge fund manager, and um, he said, "Oh, well, kind of the only thing you need to know about psychology is Act." Mm. And then he said, "You know, like the Act hexagon." So I googled. Act hexagon, and I was like, "Whoa, this is so interesting!" So, I would love to know more about how ACT is different from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, and and what its relationship to mindfulness be. And I'm also really curious about this, like. Act hexagon yeah. that I found on Google Images. Yeah. So, and and it's sort of the 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 six core processes that all feed into psychological flexibility, and and they are acceptance, mindfulness, values, committed action, self as context, and then diffusion. So, like being able to unhook from your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so, the way that Act differs from CBT is that. CBT really focuses on changing thoughts in order to change um, our emotional experiences and then also to kind of set us up for behaviors that are more adaptive. Acceptance and commitment therapy focuses more on your relationship to both your thoughts and your emotions. So it's the idea that sometimes we can't change them, but what we can work on is changing how we relate to them. And so, for example, if you have a mm. thought of, you know, I'm a really bad podcaster and my voice sounds very childish you might not be able to delete that thought because it's a it's a practice thought mm. and we can't delete neural pathways, but we can pay less attention to them and or learn to relate to them differently. That is so interesting. So it's more meta. It's like a metacognitive. It's like you don't have to change the thought exactly. itself. This kind of like I could pay attention to it. I could not pay attention. I could be distant right. from it. And the same goes for emotions that you can you know, notice the feelings of anxiety or sadness and then reconnect to your value and pick a committed action. And again, that, I mean, just coming back to grit, I think that can fit because you might say like, you know, I'm having a year where I have a very young child. Um, and so I can sort of back off of some yeah. of the goals, but still keep the ball moving, even if more slowly towards some of the higher order goals that have mm. been true for me for a number of years. 
Um, and, and this kind of gets to the work family enrichment mm-hmm. that I think is like a little bit related to the job crafting idea. But if you learn to relate to it in a way that says, mm-hmm. you know, slowing down mm-hmm. and spending more time with my family will help me recharge for my work. It might help me learn some interpersonal skills, like some patience. And I can use that to feed my professional or, or other kinds of superordinate goals. And that can be a way that you build grit even as you're slowing down in some of your activities. And, and again, I don't, I don't know that that necessarily works, but that's a little bit of how I sometimes think mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, I, I really love that. And, um, you know, you talked about aligning with your um, core values as part of ACT. And, um, you know, one of the things that has become increasingly clear to me when I ponder the people I interview who are paragons of, of grit, um, and I just try to understand them, you know, like, who is this three-star Michelin chef? Mm. Like, what makes them tick? Like, how do they... Um, like relate to themselves in the world. I think that what really underlies all this passion and perseverance um, uh, that that is the kind of obvious phenotype, if you will, of grit is like an alignment. What do I mean? Well, you know, what I do and what I say and what I want and what I want to want and what I want to want to want. And in fact, my highest level, like it's all aligned. There's, um, and then if you're like, what else is there? Like, how could it not be? It's like, oh, plenty of ways. It, It could be misaligned. You could have goals conflict. What I, what I have to do today is not what I want to do, or what I want to do is not what I want to want to do. Right. And when I think about happiness, um, more and more, I think that fulfillment, happiness, like a feeling, you know, there are days where I could tell you, yeah, like I just feel great. The most recent memory of this was uh, to illustrate this alignment idea. This kind of like, there's a kind of harmony, you know, like my values, what I'm doing, what I want to do, um, like, and the absence of conflict. Um, like I was walking back from um, dropping off flowers to um, Katie Milkman, who just, you know, had published her book that, and, you know, it was the Tuesday that her book came out. And I remember looking at my schedule and figuring out that like just barely if I speed walked, I could go to the florist, pick up the flowers that would match her book cover, like just when the florist opened, drop them off, turn tail and speed walk home before my Zoom call, you know, and, and as I was rushing home, I remember thinking consciously, like, this is great. Like, I'm doing what I want to do. Like, you know, I wanted to express some affection for like my academic BFF. Um, I, you know, really like walking, by the way. I really do. I'm like, this is fun. I'm out, you know, taking a brisk walk in the morning. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, doing what my mother always taught me to do, which is, you know, my, I always think like, you know, I am my mother's daughter. Like anytime I do anything vaguely kind, I'm like, well, that's because I'm my mother's (laughs) daughter. And that kind of alignment, I mean, that's happiness. Right. And, and then when I think about my, my lowest lows, it's always because there's some kind of corrosive goal conflict. It's like, oh God, we have to go here and spend all of Saturday. And I don't want to spend Saturday that way. You know what I really want to. And so I kind of feel like, you know, I'd love to learn more about ACT and, um, and how it overlaps with sorts of things I had previously been studying, because I really feel like if people could be in alignment with their core values, like they would be productive and fulfilled and happy. And then if you ask the question like, well, what if they're evil or whatever? I'm like, you know what? Most people's, I think, deepest core values, maybe not all, but like the vast majority are like really good. That's why all the heroes in movies 
are doing good things, not yeah. bad things, you yeah. know, like, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very, you know, not just sympathetic, but I guess enthusiastic about that particular tenet of, of act. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. That kind of gets me to another question, which is, just a broad question of what your recommendations are for growing grit, because, you know, a lot of the time we have to do things that we don't want to do. I actually, let me frame it as one of my podcast Mm -hmm. colleagues asked. He said, if you can offer a three simple steps to train your grit every day, he would love that. (laughs) (laughs) One, two, three. Um, Well, you know, there are lots of things that that are like that. The trick is doing them every day. Uh, Like if I could actually do the the darn exercises my physical therapist assigned me and there is really like one, two, three, like every day, then, then I would, but that is why we are behavioral scientists who keep trying to. Right. That's why Katie Milkman's book is so going to be so successful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Start with reading how to change. Um, Okay. Well, um, one suggestion would be actually, and I'm not kidding to, um, to read and to listen to podcasts. And um, I make that recommendation for a few reasons. One is that I do think having like a, a kind of like deeper understanding, right? Like, like kind of like, oh, I get it. Their thoughts and their feelings. We have relationships with them. Like, oh, this is what a goal is. Like, this is what it is to have like a subordinate goal. Like that's super helpful. And if you get it through books, great. And if you get it through podcasts, great. And if you get it through both, then you're like the people that I study because oftentimes um, when I'm interviewing somebody who's like a multiple time gold medalist in the Olympics or a you know CEO of a huge global company and I get to sort of like, what are their personal habits? I mean, they're all like self-development nerds. I mean, they just love reading things. They read Dale Carnegie, they read Danny Kahneman, they're listening to podcasts and they're constantly trying to um, like, you know, fine tune their morning routine and so forth. So I think reading is great. Dick Nisbet, who's one of the great, great um, psychologists ever, um, very, and also a very kind person. Uh, one year I had all these high school kids in the lab and we asked Dick Nisbet to talk to them 
And so he gave them like a little mini lecture on social psychology. And I won't forget this. He said to them, now you young people, I know you're on your phones or on your screens. He was like, I just want to tell you something very important. He was like, read, read. There's like, there's no substitute for the kind of thinking and learning you can do um, when you read. And Tolstoy at the end of his life um, apparently said that like, you know, it was a great discovery for him to realize that like all the people who have ever written a book, like you can still talk to them, you know, no matter what century they lived in or what village they grew up in, you can talk to the greatest minds um, in civilization if you read. So number one, because it's one, two, three, one is read or listen um, to, uh, thoughts about, you know, this, uh, you know, thing called human nature. Um, then the second thing I would say, you know, is, um, one of the things I read actually, um, is us weekly, um, actually pretty much without exception. I'm a pretty loyal reader of us weekly. I know it's a, I, I probably shouldn't because of all the terrible things it's like objectifying or, but anyway, I do. And I remember reading about Bethany Frankel, like the real housewife, Bethany Frankel, and she was doing some new ventures. And in this little interview, she said, you know, I'm the kind of person like, as soon as I have an idea, Without a lot of delay, I literally just start. It's just, it's just like, I'm just go, go, go. Um, and I think that's great advice. So I'm thinking of another woman entrepreneur named um, Ellen Marie Bennett. She started out as a line cook and she came from nothing, you know, actually relatively uh, poor side of the family from Mexico, et cetera. And um, one day the chef in the restaurant um, was putting in orders for aprons and Ellen had thought to herself before she had any reason to be able to think she could do it, that she could make all the aprons for the chef and that restaurant. And then maybe she could do something like have a company that made aprons. And that is exactly what she did. She built a multi-million dollar brand with um, collaborations like Vans and Top Chef. And um, Ellen Marie Bennett is just like, oh, okay. I'll do it. And, and so, so I think the second uh, suggestion is don't spend all your time reading. Like, you know, when you have an idea as Goethe is sometimes quoted as, but I think it's a slight, uh, a slight elaboration of Goethe, you know, whatever it is you can do or think you can do, do it. Yeah. Action has power, magic, and beauty to it. Um, so, okay. That's the second recommendation. And the third one is I think like find your way into a family. Um, and, and by that, I mean, some of us are very lucky to have been born with parents who are loving and challenging and wonderful role models. And we just had graduation at my university, University of Pennsylvania, and I got to meet the families of, uh, some of my students and they were without exception, the kind of loving, uh, like, wonderful families that I I know like incubate lots of good things. But if you're not fortunate to have been born into such a wonderful nurturing network with a terrific PhD advisor, then go find one. Um, and um, tonight I'm going to have over for dinner a student who unfortunately lost his uh, family. and um, But he is so wonderful. Like he found other people, including me, like he's graduating, like we're going to celebrate tonight, but he's not biologically my kid. I just met him four years ago. And I know there are other faculty and mentors who feel exactly the same way. Like we're so proud that Eli's graduating and, you know, we're going to be like rooting for him, you know, his whole life. So 
one, read. Two, don't spend all your time reading. Do something. And three, you know, find yourself a family um, who will uh, take care of you um, and who you will take care of. I love that. I'm sort of thinking that it fits into like a triumvirate of like think, act, and connect. And those are three ingredients for really thriving. And I love the reading recommendation. You know, Yael, when you say like, well, those three things that, you know, I mean, look, I didn't think about the answer to that question in advance because you didn't give it to me in advance. And that's that's um, what was off the top of my head. But I will say thinking, doing, and let's call the last one about family, like relating, right? You could also call it loving or like thinking, doing, loving, thinking, doing, relating, thinking, doing, connecting. But like, I do think these are the three tasks of human yeah. beings. Um, and um, and I think it's very deep. Like, I think if you actually map like theories of self like anyway, I, I don't want to use jargon, but like lots of theories and motivation and personality come down to like, there, there are ways that people think, um, how open-minded are you or not, how like, you know, curious are you or not there are the ways to think and there are ways to think better there are ways of doing you know are you proactive or do you hang back you know do you persist or do you give up early so there's ways of doing and the last one about relating or loving or connecting those are the three major tasks and if you can do those reasonably well hopefully based on um good psychologically wise advice in part from scientists then you know it's hard to imagine that your life won't go better not that you you have a perfect life, but like, yeah, kind of thriving. Yeah, it kind of comes down to that. My dad was not a trained psychologist. He was a chemist. And he used to say to me, there are thinkers, doers, and charmers. Um, and then he would say, um, you know, most people can't be more than one or maybe two, uh, but almost nobody is three. Um, and I remember when he told me this, I was like a little girl. And like most things my dad said, I immediately wanted to prove him wrong. Um, but I, I do think that we can be all three, right? Like, why can't we think well and and act well and relate well? Like, I, I think that's a good formula for living a good that life. That sounds like a nice superordinate goal. Um, so before I let you go, I know that our time is short, but just Given that recommendation, the first one of reading, I'm, and because it's clear that you're a reader, um, I'm curious, are, have you read anything particularly inspiring in the past year that you'd want to share? Yeah, well, let's see. Um, and also, um, since I don't sleep well, I actually read a lot. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's like in the middle of the night when I like wake up and I can't go back to sleep. But I always read before I go to bed. So in addition to Us Weekly, um, which I'm not even sure I recommend. Um, okay, so here's some books that I have read in the last year that I super recommend. In addition to, you know, Katie's book, um, and then just in the category of behavioral science, Cialdini, Bob Cialdini's revised his classic influence. And I just really loved the revision, Adam Grant's Think Again, Danny Kahneman um, has written another classic, instant classic called Noise, which comes out um, this week, I think. Um, so th I do, I read all these um, behavioral science books and I'm like, this is amazing. I love that people are writing, you know, because I look forward to reading your book, Yale, as well. Um, then in the category of not behavioral science, um, I read a memoir. I love memoirs and I super love this memoir called I Am a Girl from Africa. I read it almost all in one sitting. Um, and um, uh, it's uh, by a woman named Elizabeth Nyamayaro, if I pronounced her last name right. And um, it's a really 
beautifully written uh, like story of a beautiful life. Um, and if you're a memoir lover, like just buy it. It's a yellow book. I am a girl from Africa. And then finally, I'll just say what I'm uh, reading ex- exactly now, like as in what I will look forward to reading tonight. My cousin Jessica um, got me four like teen um, fantasy novels um, that she thought like um, I would enjoy as she got it for my birthday. And she was like, look, I'm sending them to your Kindle. So if you don't like them, they won't fill any landfills. You can feel guilt-free. Um, and of course, like I love them. So yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard very wise parents, you know, be very careful about like things that their kids can't watch, you know, like TV shows or, but um, this very capable parent whose three daughters, one ended up running YouTube. The other one is uh, the CEO of 23andMe. And the third is a award-winning uh, scientist. She said, this is Esther Wojcicki. She said, I was careful what I let them watch and do, but I let them read anything because reading is just almost always yeah. great. And I was, I was thinking like, that's not bad parenting advice. Yeah. I love that your reading tastes run the gamut, really, from like Us Weekly to Goethe. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to categorize. But I love that. I mean, and, and just sort of like a last note on grit, it, you know, grit is one superordinate goal, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a lot of activities that are in lots of different domains and that are both hard moving forward and that are just really pleasant and sort of decompressing. So I think... In their yeah. own right. Um, wait, I did have one more question, which is, um, I've, I heard you say that you're never going to write another book, but grit was so good. Why? And how can I convince you to write another book? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Just as you're asking me this, like literally, uh, this week I'm, well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking to my agent and my editor for grit. And I think I am going to write another book. Um, yeah, L and I think it will be, have you ever read the cookbook salt, fat, acid? I like love reading cookbooks, even if I never cook out of them, I still love reading them. And, um, I, well, I sometimes cook out of them, but, um, I'll I'll say this. There is this cookbook um, named Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and it makes the claim that if you can understand salt, fat, acid, and heat, and if you you get those four elements right, they're kind of like the latitude and longitude of cooking, and your food will taste better. Um, And if you get one or more of those wrong, your food is not going to taste that great. And when this uh, chef, Samin Nosrat, uh, wrote it, um, like it was the kind of thing where it's like before she wrote it, everyone thought like, how would anybody write such a book and why would you? And then afterwards it was like, oh my God, why didn't I write that book? Um, So said the chefs that I interviewed about it. And um, I thought maybe I would try to write that for for human behavior, right? So like, what are the most important things? Like, what's the highlight reel that you'd want to know? Um, You know, and that's why in part, I was so interested in ACT. I was like, wait a second, you know, maybe ACT has like a lot, maybe, maybe not everything, but like, maybe, maybe everything. Anyway, I'm so I'm really interested in like, you know, putting everything that anybody has done in clinical, social, psychology, behavioral economics, etc, into one book that has a little warmth and memoir feel to it. Oh, and God. So, well, if anyone can synthesize that level of amount of material <laughs> and depth of material, it would be you and it would like be amazing. Daunting. So I, I hope you I hope you take that challenge on because I would love to read that. <laughs> <laughs> I will let you know. I will keep you posted. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy anniversary, 200. Um, and we'll link to characterlab.org. And I definitely recommend anybody yes. out there who hasn't already read it to pick up Grit because it's amazing. Thank you, Angela. Thanks, Yael. I look forward to our next conversation. 
thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.